for, for those of you who, who haven't joined us before for our labor history talks, once a month we um, get together and usually Avery prepares a, a bit of writing that's based in history and experience from a labor perspective, all things that we can turn into lessons for today. Again, I want to thank you all for joining. Um, times have been so strange and schedules seem to have lost their importance. So. The pandemic has triggered a lot of changes in our lives and uh, in keeping with the theme of uh, the trouble that's brought about by the pandemic, uh, the focus of tonight's talk will be working from home. So Avery is on video and Alex is under the name Wells. They'll be the first speakers followed by Mammy McCall. And whenever you're ready to, um, I think you can begin, begin speaking. Uh, I think we were thinking Alex would go first. He's starting earliest in history, right, Alex? Yeah. Great. All right, you ready? Um, so this talk is about the history of working from home. Um, obviously, many of us, myself included, started working from home in March, and many of us seem to be slated to work from home indefinitely. Uh, this wouldn't be possible without modern internet. Uh, you know, even 15 years ago, coordinating meetings in a video chat would be technologically feasible for an entire office. So why should we care about the pre-industrial history of working from home? As you'll see, a lot of the same economic forces that made it profitable for bosses in the 17th and 18th century are still at work. As a stepping stone between a medieval economy and a modern capitalist economy, the system of cottage industry helped turn self-sufficient peasants into inter interchangeable workers dependent on their bosses. And it helped, uh, sorry, it helped destroy the craft guild system, which had ensured a stable li living for skilled artisans for centuries. And I should point out, um, I, I take kind of a dim view of working from home in this talk. Um, personally, it's, you know, I enjoy being able to take a shower and, you know, cook breakfast in the middle of the day. Um, but obviously a lot of other people are having, um, you know, a, a much harder time with it. And also, uh, I, I do think that, that, you know, the, the historical period I'm talking about did make the world worse. Um, so starting in the early modern period in the 1500s and 1600s, as imperialist powers like Spain, Portugal, England, and the Netherlands were transforming from medieval kingdoms to mercantilist empires, the rising ruling class of European elites and financiers were looking for ways to exploit their native workforces more efficiently. This was around the same time as the enclosure of the commons in Britain, when the privatization of public land forced unprecedented numbers of rural peasants off their ancestral land and into towns and cities. As medieval feudal relations gave way to more modern monetary relationships, peasants who traditionally made a living with agricultural labor now had to find ways to supplement or replace their income. At the same time, as the American colonies became an ever larger source of raw materials, European powers had to find a way to organize an unprecedented amount of labor in order to export finished products, you know, by, by uh, you know, manufacturing products from the raw materials. Uh, so between the early colonial period and the early 1800s, the owners and financiers of new import-export businesses hit upon a solution. They would deliver raw materials like wool or partially finished products like bolts of cloth to the homes of individual peasants and townspeople with a particular quota and a deadline by which the work had to be finished. This was called the cottage industry or the putting out system. Uh, these employees and their families would complete this work in between their other obligations, uh, family, farm work, or whatever, whatever other day job they might have had. And uh, as I was looking to the sources, uh, two other industries they mentioned a lot were making shoes and uh, making chairs. So, you know, in those cases, it would be, you know, they would be given leather and or wood and they would have to, you know, build the parts and so on. Um, so this new system accomplished a very few, uh, a few very important things for the burgeoning merchant class in Europe. First, it incorporated subsistence farmers into the cash economy. The bosses were no longer bound by feudal obligations to their workers, as the medieval lords had entered multi-generational complex, uh, sorry, multi-generational relationships with their vassals. Uh, if the workers weren't working hard enough, or if the business was no longer profitable, they could be fired if the business could be shut down quickly and easily without involving any political authorities. Second, it ensured a continuous flow of income for the bosses. 
Butyloid profits had relied on their vassal's crop surplus, which could be entirely negated by a dry spring or a hot summer. If the crops didn't grow, the crops didn't grow, and that affected everyone who relied on fuel payments all the way up the ladder. Whereas, since cottage industry wasn't reliant on the weather or other natural phenomena, children and other family members could pick up the slack if the worker was falling behind. And since the workers were individually responsible for their quota, if they fell into debt to their employer, uh, you know, by, by failing to do the work over and over, they could be sent to a workhouse and exploited even uh, more severely. Third, it allowed the bosses to circumvent the craft guilds. So throughout the late medieval period, skilled artisans like carpenters, blacksmiths, potters, cobblers, jewelers, etc., had amassed considerable power by controlling every aspect of training, pricing, competition, and production in their industry. Since they carried out complex multi-step tasks, and since they would only teach their skills to apprentices over a period of years, they were able to create essential worker-controlled monopolies in most skilled industries in the late medieval and early modern Europe. And when a member of that guild died or became disabled, the guild was uh, responsible for providing for that member's family. However, since cottage industry broke down the, the different aspects of work, for example, separating spinning from weaving and weaving from sewing, etc., individual workers only had to learn and perfect one stage of the process and set up the entire process. Uh, this made these individual workers interchangeable, negated the, the need for a years-long apprenticeship uh, with the master, and undercut the social and economic power of the craft guilds. Since the guilds no longer controlled every part of training and production, they weren't able to keep prices regulated. <clears throat> they eventually lost business to the more efficient putting up system, and they were no longer able to provide for their fel fellow members and their families. Fourth, the overhead costs to the boss uh, in the cottage industry were basically non-existent uh, beyond transportation. They didn't need to maintain a factory building or pay managers and overseers, um, and the proof of work or lack thereof of their workers would be plainly visible by the day. So they didn't need to constantly, you know, monitor every minute of work. Um, so although both men and women were contracted to carry out cottage work, the vast majority of cottage workers were women. There were a couple reasons for this. Uh, first, as part of a rationalization that would extend well into the 20th century, bosses argued that since men were the primary breadwinners for their families, women's income should merely supplement their husbands which of course was an attempt to justify paying women much less than a fair wage for their work. Second, women were much more likely to already be skilled in the task of daily household maintenance, many of which were also useful to manufacturers, spinning, weaving, chewing, uh, shoemaking, sewing, etc. cetera. Uh, third, this brought women's work into the growing cash economy. <coughs> cash economy. Formerly, the work they had spent their days performing, farming, cooking, making, and mending clothes and caring for children, had been entirely socially reproductive rather than economically productive in a modern sense. Uh, now that women spent less time making and fixing things for the family and more time working for a wage, they would be more reliant on buying manufactured goods, which ultimately proved for Boston's benefit. Um, so the first modern factories uh, were built in Britain in the late 18th century and uh, New England in the early 19th century, and these gradually replaced cottage labor. So now in these new factories, every minute of production could be supervised. Uh, workers were removed from their households to uh, specific sites of labor. The onus of transportation to and from the work site every day fell on the individual workers who previously had goods delivered to their house or picked up the goods at a, at a location every you know, couple of weeks or so. Uh, the social and economic fallout from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution proper is well known, but it bears mentioning that many of the early factories served to bridge the traditional cottage industry to, to the growing factory economy. Uh, the textile mills at Lowell, Massachusetts, which are well known, in the early 19th century explicitly marketed themselves not only as an income opportunity for young women, but also as a kind of finishing school at which working class girls would be molded into, quote, acceptable women and wives. Uh, just as children were implicitly recruited into the production process of cottage labor, at least when their parents couldn't fill their quota, now girls as young as six were explicitly being hired for industrial labor, and especially tasks that required uh, tiny hands like moving the spools from, uh, you know, from uh, part to part. Uh, children and young women would be sorted into dormitories under the supervision of a quote-unquote respectable matron, and in between 80-hour work weeks, the workers would be socialized in 19th century femininity in what was intended to be a simulacrum of ideal family life. 
Um, of course, this perverted social function of the factories, along with the fact that none of the employees were their family's primary breadwinners, breadwinners, became a justification to pay the workers a pittance. Uh, these relations would ultimately cause the first labor strikes in U.S. history in 1834 and 1836 in the lower mills. Uh, even if their bosses had, hadn't anticipated, socializing girls and young women as a workforce rather than as members of individual households had the effect of instilling a sense of the collective and making clear exactly what, the, what their purpose was in the industrial process. Uh, so at first glance, our modern predicament uh, seems to be shaped by a lot of the same forces. Uh, speaking for my job, all of us are now using our own personal computers at home. Now that we don't have to commute to work, pick the kids up from school, or recreate at all outside the house, we theoretically have more, more hours in the day for work. Meanwhile, the company I work for no longer has to keep the lights on in the building, or pay custodians and security guards, or buy paper and printer aids and staples. In essence, all the tasks of daily maintenance that made continued work possible have been offloaded onto individual workers and their families. Massive unemployment and society at large has eroded workers' bargaining power, since we can be easily replaced. And to boot, workers are now more isolated from each other, uh, which makes organizing a workplace action uh, that much more complicated. Uh, so these are all benefits to our bosses. Uh, there are certain aspects of our uh, current situation that benefit nobody. Uh, for example, the lack of public school means that parents have to be full-time workers as well as full-time teachers and babysitters, which ensures that none of these jobs can be done uh, that effectively. But uh, the situation does bring certain unforeseen advantages. Uh, for example, the internet now connects us to the entire world throughout our entire workdays with no direct supervision. So not only, does this allow to, uh, this, not only does this allow us to talk about our bosses behind their backs, but the lack of ancillary obligations, uh, you know, like getting gas and you know, stuff, it means that our entire workload could be counted up and subtracted from the hours of the day. So for those of us working from home, there are no longer any intermediate steps between the work we're required to perform and the time it takes us to perform it, which I hope will give us a clear view of exactly what we're expected to do and for what. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks, Alex. Um, so I'm going to be the bridge between Alex and then our featured speaker, which is Mamie. And Mamie is going to talk about current day stuff and struggles that have already happened to improve home working conditions. I'm going to try to bridge the history from Alex up to today and try to answer a question along the way about whether and how much it's possible for home workers to organize and defend themselves, defend ourselves. I'm a home worker at the moment. Um, so at its worst, home working divides and isolates workers. It pulls children into labor. It profits from women's oppression. It hides health and safety abuses. It undermines unionized workplaces or factories, and it provides scabs when people in a workplace go on a strike together. Uh, and yet, uh, it has been possible for workers at home to not play those roles, but to play a positive role in helping us all get together. In post-Civil War New York City, you have these cigar manufacturers. And what they did was they bought the owners of the factories bought these apartments, these tenements. And then they rented the apartments at very inflated prices to workers in the factory who were required to live in the tenement. Uh, and then they had their rent just deducted from their paychecks. You didn't get a chance to not pay the rent. It just came right out of your check. Uh, the apartments were hot. They lacked proper sanitation. And by 1877, 
the cigar manufacturers had moved four-fifths, 80% of cigar production out of the factories, and they brought it into the tenements where home workers were paid less. Well, 1877 was an important year for us, for working people, because that was the year when there was a spontaneous nationwide railroad strike, which shut down the country, and it led to battles with the police. And I don't know how many people have heard of historian Howard Zinn. He wrote a book called, a great book called A People's History of the United States. And he talks about the 1877 railroad strike. And he says that the strike committee that the workers created in the city of St. Louis, which is one of the cities where the railroad strike happened, that strike committee in St. Louis had so much mass support from the population as a whole and participation from them that he says it was the first example in history of a workers council or a Soviet. And a, a workers council is when a workers organization starts to run the society, starts to replace the government, starts to show that it's more powerful than the existing government. Anyway, this strike, this railroad strike in the summer, it inspired the Cigar Makers International Union, CMIU, to go on strike in New York City. There was a headline in the New York Sun in October of 1877, and it said, quote, factories now following the lead of the tenements, cigar, maker, uh, cigar making generally suspended. Interesting to note that it says the factories were following the tenements. They viewed the tenements, the home workers, as leading the factory workers out onto the strike, not the other way around. Um, three quarters of all of the cigar makers, both home workers and factory workers, walked out. And each shop, factory, and also each tenement house sent delegates to the cigar makers central organization. Uh, and the leader of that was the young Samuel Gompers. He was a cigar maker. Um, the organization collected a strike fund. It ran a commissary so that workers on strike could eat. And it took striking workers who didn't have jobs or money and put them into a cooperative. They started a new factory, a cooperative factory, which helped raise money for the strike. Most home workers were women. Most of them were Bohemian immigrants. Uh, and sometimes these homeworking Bohemian immigrant women were more militant than the factory hands at the company called Mendel Brothers. Uh, the home workers were demanding $2 more per day than, and whereas uh, the factory ones were only calling for a dollar more. It's true that the factory workers already made more, but still the home workers were, were asking for more. The owners of the factories owned the tenements, so they started evicting workers on strike. But the strike committee would help workers to relocate to help the strike try to win. Uh, the, um, a few employers gave in in this strike, but overall, the strike lost. And there were probably many reasons, but Gompers 
contributed to some of those. Gompers and many of the male workers had mixed feelings about the whole idea of women workers at all, and also the idea of anyone working from home. And that weakened their commitment, and contributed to the defeat. There was also some racism in this strike against Chinese workers. So after the strike was defeated, immigrant socialist cigar workers split from the Cigar Workers Union of Gompers and started the Cigar Makers Progressive Union, CMPU. And for a few years, they did what Gompers no longer wanted to do, which was, we're definitely organizing the tenants. We don't care. You know, there was no issue for them about women not supposed to be at work. They aggressively organized tenement workers, women workers, and they had substantial success for a few years. But coming out of this strike and its defeat in 1877, the main effect was that Gompers, who became the head of the American Federation of Labor, and most unionists, they gave up on the idea of organizing home workers in support of their sexist notion about male breadwinning. Most unions hardened into an advocacy of outlawing homework. And they did succeed in passing many laws over the decades culminating in the New Deal. A lot of, in a lot of places and cities, you'd have to get a license as a manufacturer if you wanted to do homework. Uh, and then for various industries, it was just outlawed as a whole. And I haven't done enough research to say whether those laws were overall more helpful in keeping workers' living standards up or not. One thing that's definitely clear from just having read a little bit is that even though it was outlawed, it didn't stop. And it was still a very big thing. You know, tens of thousands of workers I read about in just New York City, I mean, or New York State, in the garment industry as late as the 80s. So a lot of things were outlawed, but that didn't mean they weren't happening. And so uh, the laws may or may not have been helpful in keeping standards up, but definitely the sexist blind spot about the possibility of organizing home workers was damaging. Um, 1933, quickly I wanna point out that in Puerto Rico, a city called Mayagüez, there was a strike for higher pay, uh, both inside and outside garment factories. And there were about 3,000 home workers involved in this. And these home workers formed their own union locals. They had nine union locals of home workers. And this was very impressive for home workers to come together that way in this case, because they weren't all unemployer-owned tenements. They weren't working in the same apartment buildings. They were more spread out. Some of them were rural. And the inside and outside workers won 15 to 25% increases. But then an interesting thing happened with the strike settlement, which was that many of the home workers, no one ever came by to tell them. They didn't get the raise because they never were informed about it. Uh, and finally, in the 1990s, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union was facing a new wave of subcontracted homeworking after the Reagan era deregulation of homework. Reagan wanted to say, let it rip. And so the ILGWU sought to build organization among the home workers, breaking their long-standing opposition, going back to the Gompers era, their long-standing total opposition to homework. They said, look, 
we can't avoid the fact that home workers are out there. We need to make them with us and organize them. And this didn't lead to strikes in the 90s, but it rather led to home workers becoming voices in rallies and public hearings, and it led to some legal improvements. Um, in other countries, home workers have often formed cooperatives uh, where they all came together and would market their own products. They wouldn't have a boss, they would, or they would elect from among themselves. And then they could pay themselves more by cutting out the middleman, raising their wages. And that pulled up the wages of non-cooperative workers who were still employed by employers because it improved the labor market. But all of these examples that I just mentioned, they definitely prove that organizing home workers is possible. As home workers, we can fight. There's plenty of history behind that. Um, but they are the exceptions to the rule so far. And this is one of the reasons why employers can be very eager to go to home working. And in recent decades, it hasn't just been things like cigar making or clothing manufacturing. After World War II, there started to be a lot of home workers who were doing direct mail. In the 80s, there was a lot of discussion about office workers, uh, wider numbers of clerical workers doing work from home. Victor's gonna mention a little bit later some of the uh, reactions, some of the positive and negative uh, discussion in the literature about home working in the more modern era. Uh, how is it good and how is it bad for us? But in terms of unionization, it's been more common uh, that home workers have, un have remained unorganized because they're isolated and they're by undercut union standards, broken strikes, and been exposed to poor pay and conditions. The main reason is isolation. Capitalism creates its own grave diggers by concentrating workers together in collective workplaces, and they're always happy to find a way to get around that problem if they can. Since the pandemic, county workers like me have worked from home, and our local, SEIU Local 221, has seen a surge of involvement as workers have fought for adequate PPE. Some of us didn't get adequate PPE, we had to fight for it. And hazard pay, we've been fighting for. Some of us have gotten it in the local county, we haven't gotten it. Um, it has become easier to organize in my department. I work in adult protective services. And we have six different offices scattered all around the county from Oceanside to South Bay. But tomorrow, we're having our first ever meeting for all APS workers, our first ever countywide union meeting online. We'll see how it goes, but I'm hopeful about it. And like Alex was saying, home workers today have a better chance to organize than in the past. Might still be hard, but it's better than in the past because of technology. But I'll just close by saying this. Many county work sites, from what I know, have been organized up to now because of daily face-to-face -face contact. And my opinion is that organizing ourselves by Zoom, like we're doing right now, and like I'll do tomorrow at, with the APS meeting at lunch, I think that requires a more determined, self-motivated group of worker leaders who will actively reach out to coworkers, not just wait until we run into each other at the office to tell them about the meeting. So I would just say that historically, socialist and other radical workers who are fired by the conviction that workers ought to run the whole world. 
since we, not the bosses, are the ones that do the work, uh, have been the most passionately dedicated to organizing our coworkers and meeting the challenges of organizing home workers may require more and more workers to be fired this idea that we should be the ones who run this world, not the people who own it right now. Since we'll get a little bit of that passion that we're gonna to need to rise to the challenges of working from home. That's it. Thanks, Avery. Um, uh, so just for everyone else to know, um, Mamie's an employee with the Housing Commission, and she has been a longtime member of SEIU Local 221. Whenever you're ready, Mamie, you can go ahead and start. Okay, I'm starting. Can you hear me? You can hear me okay? Yep. Oh, okay. Yes. I just want to make sure, you know, I was like, we're doing this. So um, my name is, you know, Mamie McCall. I've been with the Housing Commission uh, for about 24 years. It'll be 24 years um, in October. And um, one of the things that we've done in regards to or the current um, effect for COV-19 was a demand to bargain. Um, one of the things in demanding to bargain, we, we actually, with the stay-at-home order that occurred um, back on March 16th, uh, we had already sent a, a request and demand to bargain with our union, um, from the union, to the Housing Commission um, in order to set up a meeting. And through those meetings, um, we have um, Shane and um, worksite organizer Chaz. We were able to really work with maybe two or three meetings with the um, management team and trying to identify the importance of certain things with the impact. And one of the things that we were able to do, um, we were actually very successful in really working and moving forward to negotiate. A um, couple of things that we've actually did. We actually, I guess our letter was actually published with um, SEIU. And one of the things that we were talking about, as Avery had mentioned, was the um, hazardous pay. Uh, one of the things with the hazardous pay, we were able to, currently we have maybe about over 100 represented class in um, the San Diego Housing Commission chapter. We have about 350 employees. So what we did was actually set the, we, we, were, we were trailblazers in setting the standard in regards to moving forward. One of the things that we were able to really identify the importance of having that protective uh, equipment, the hazardous pay, we were looking at maybe some of the di technical difficulties that we would have in doing working from home. And so you have to think, you know, our safety and our protection, we want to ensure that we're moving forward to have the type of resources that we need to have in order to do the job that we're doing. Uh, in identifying our success and our victory, we were able to successfully negotiate through efforts of our team. And the team consisted of Shane, Chaz, myself, uh, Matthew Casas, Naima, Heidi, and also um, Amy Serna we were able to really look at the negotiation and move forward. And some of the things that we were able to do in our success was 
identifying um, an increase. So we got a 10% increase in the hazardous pay. So what that means is that people who were required to be on site to work, such as the office specialist um, or maintenance techs, they got an extra 10% in their pay in order to identify um, pay differential. One of the other things that we were able to get through our efforts was a stipend, a monthly stipend, which was a $80 stipend for individuals who are using the Housing Commission's property as a part of a laptop, or $100 if they were using their own personal resources and so forth. So that was actually really great in regards to a stipend. When regards to the protective, um, the personal protective equipment for maintenance, we were able to really solidify the need in regards to ensuring that we have sanitizers, wipes, gloves, and so forth. And one of the things that occurred prior to us successfully negotiating this is that we actually had an incident that occurred. We had an incident that occurred on April 2nd, where we had one of the office assistants at our office um, actually have um, a, a received letter from our um, eligibility department that clearly identified that this person had contracted um, COV-19. This employee actually took that letter to a, a housing manager and was instructed by the housing manager to put it in a bag and just spray it. So there was really no written protocol in regards to certain things and how to address certain needs. So when I was when I was notified of this, I actually, as part of the member of the safety committee, I was able to send out an email basically addressing the concern because if we don't have written protocols in writing in regards to how we're going to handle certain things, how can we allow the employees who are working on site to feel a sense of assurance of safety? And I think that was one of the main things that we wanted to move forward is that we always want to ensure that the employees who are working on site versus the employees that are working from home are still having the same sense of safety and that the management staff are providing that safety. Well, let me let you know that based on the email, based on the efforts that we had to organize the um, senior VP um, of our department basically was able to um, respond very quickly. She happened to be at the office at the time of the incident. She was able to respond very quickly. She was able to speak to the two employees to be able to address the concerns and the needs because we're talking about reassurance. And then um, a couple employees chose to leave the office because they were still kind of inundated with just what had occurred. But I think in the importance of organizing and being a union leader or being um, available I was very happy to, to be there at that time. Sometimes we don't realize the kind of work that we do until the time arises at a crucial moment. The importance of our voice and what we do, the importance of the integrity that we maintain as individuals um, to move forward to ensure a sense of support and security for others. And from that one incident, when we were finally able to do our, our negotiation before the side letter, I was able to bring that incident up. So, you know, you've got the Housing Commission got their team, 
you have our team and I was able to reflect on, hey, you know, we have this incident and we don't have anything in writing. We still really don't have anything in writing, but I was able to validate the need in order to ensure that, hey, you know what, you want to negotiate the impacts that are occurring. This is real stuff. And this is happening to employees that are doing a good job, want to continue to do a good job and need to know that the that the agency is appreciating the kind of work that's being done. So in order to do that, we were able to move forward with that. We got what we asked for. They actually had started and did not want to go retroactive to the day of um, stay at home order. But through the incident and me being able to share that, we went back retroactive for that hazardous pay increase in 10% back to March 16th. And that was actually a great win for us. That was a great win in regards to us solidifying the importance of no matter how small a group we have, that we can still mobilize the importance of strength in numbers and moving forward. One of the other things that we also were able to get was in regards to a uh, our, the notification in the side letter where because we're working from home, we all know that we have a lot of technical difficulties in regards to connections, in regards to whatever service we have and so forth. So one of the things that we were able to really clearly identify in our side letter is that if, you know, whenever we do identify those type of challenges and difficulties in our work and our performance, that would not have an effect in the performance that we're making or doing. So we were able to clearly identify that. And then also, to identify the need for overtime. So we, you know, they were kind of haggling with us with that overtime, <laughs> but we were able to put that little simple Satan, a uh, uh, simple sentence um, in the overtime. And one of the things that's always important is to be able to uh, be vague enough and flexible enough to ensure that when we are asking for a resource that we are allowing the importance of a may. So the management, is not forced to feel that they must do it, but when the time is arise and we are able to validate through documentation and um, incidents of record where we have several days, weeks, or you know hours where we're not able to get onto the system because of technical difficulties that we can have overtime. So we signed off on the letter on the 9th. We were able to move forward with that. And since then, we have also been able to get nine hours of overtime. So um, since then, we were able to get extra nine hours of overtime for the staff, um, for the rental assistance department. We were also able to negotiate because we are working from home. Um, the hours that we have on the books um, in regards to pay time off or annual leave gets to a certain limit and then you cannot um, add any new hours, you know, you, you start to lose hours or you start, you start not to gain the hours that you've already accumulated. So since then, uh, with one of the articles, we were able to also do another side letter, which identified um, the increase from the existing MOU from a two years ago, moving forward, where we were now able to increase our request for pay time off, uh, pay in lieu, pay, um, pay in lieu of annual leave, from two requests to three requests, we were only able to do 80 hours before. Now we can do up to 160 hours. 
80, 80, no, 100, 100, up to 160 hours. So that actually is a great benefit. So through our efforts and our team, not only were we able to have so many successes and wins, but we were also able to move forward and engage the membership and really look at increasing our membership through that. There was a lot of individuals who were not paid members who were non-members, um, basically really thanking uh, the membership and thanking SEIU for the efforts being made in regards to having such a great side letter. Also moving forward with our labor management meeting. At our last labor management meeting on May 21st, we were able to really identify certain things in regards to um, our ability to ensure because of our performance, everybody gets their performance evaluation done by the end of June 30th. And one of the things in doing the performance evaluation is a requirement to have a goal. So this year, because of COV-19, we were able to um, have that goal um, no longer be in effect so that the individuals are really looking at their performance. So that was actually a good win for us in regards to, because the goal was making up like 50% of our performance. So our performance factors kind of merited on, hey, do you have to do this goal? But because of the impact of COV-19 and wanting to ensure, we were able to you know, work towards, hey, you know what, this year, um, not have the goals take an emphasis in regards to our performance. So for the employees, that was a great win. For the individuals who actually had started to um, work as part of their goals, actually was able to utilize that um, emphasis and what they did to be added to any of their performance um, factors. So I think in, in doing that, we were actually really very positive and getting everything moving forward. Um, we have more engagement in the worksite meetings that we have moving forward and so forth. And one of the things that we also addressed was the importance of PTO and taking PTO. During this time where we're looking at individuals and just the mental state of mind to really keep that in balance and check. Um, one of the things that I brought forward at the labor management meeting is that no manager should be denying anybody's PTO. We've got people who are clearly, um, you know, dying from the impact of this virus. And we have individuals who are working and doing their best at work. When we have any employee making a request for paid time off, that should be something that would should not even be questioned. And so I brought it to um, the executive management and I clearly asked them if you were to, because there was an incident where one PTO was denied. And so when the member came to me, I said, you need to take that further up. And one of the things that the member said is that if the supervisor and the member did not address the concern to somebody in SCIU or anybody else, would, any, would, would anybody ever know that that request was denied? But because that request did come to me, I basically encouraged her. I said, you know what? You need to go someone higher up. Well, that denial of those additional days was overturned. She was able to take her three weeks off. So the power of the union in regards to organizing and being able to share that information is very important. When I called the executive management team and asked them what reasons would anybody deny any PTO, she could not give me any reason. So every request for paid time off is actually done 
case by case. But when we do get something that basically is a denial and that member chooses and brings it up to the forward to um, any one of us, we will go ahead and address it. Because at this point in time, with everything going on with the racial divide and everything else, protests and, and everything going on, we all need to keep and be mindful of the type of, of work ethic that we have, the kind of integrity, because we are serving the public and we're providing good service to the public. And it's important as we continue to better the lives of the, the community that we serve, that we're moving forward in that capacity. So um, that more or less about it. But before I do leave, I wanted to just kind of say one thing. Um, I, I read a daily encouragement every day. And for today, June 9th, June 9th, this was what was stated. It says, we have to make ourselves heard. We have to speak out for what we believe in. When we, the people, boldly state our true convictions, never losing our optimism or sense of humor, the times will change. When it comes to speaking out for justice, there isn't any need for restraint. On the contrary, to be reserved or hesitant under such circumstances is wrong. So I wanna just go ahead and end with that because I think the voice that we have as a union is very important, no matter how little, how large, anytime, anywhere, it's important to be able to share that we are stronger together. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Mammy. So everyone's still with us. That was, that was really nice to hear as far as the experience going positive. All I'm hearing and even what I'm, what I'm feeling at, at, at home, it's so hard to focus. It's so hard to feel like um, you, you even can be represented. You, and um, it's, I, I think that's uh, really encouraging for me to hear um, victories, some really solid ones too, um, yes. especially with regards to compensation through the time that people don't, they have no control over, um, difficulties that, that are brand new.